welcome to the Console DevTools podcast, a show all about interesting developer tools. I'm David Mitten, co-founder of Console. And I'm Jean Young, CEO of Akita Software, an API observability startup. In each episode, we'll discuss two interesting developer tools. We're keeping this to 15 minutes, so let's get started. Today, we're talking about Tyke, which is an API gateway. You may be familiar with Kong, and this is a very similar open source project that allows you to support all types of API protocols. It handles API versioning, deprecation, does things like hot reloads without dropping requests, and it is designed as what they call a one-stop shop to provide everything you need to offer APIs on top of your application to users. And in particular, it has some interesting closed source aspects of of the project around helping you build a developer portal and documentation. But the main project itself, essentially an API gateway proxy, is open source. What do you think, Jean? Yeah, I mean, API gateways are going to become increasingly important as people have more APIs and need to manage them. I had some questions for you, David, to discuss about, you know, Tyke over some more potentially well-known API gateways like Kong or Apogee. Yeah. What are your thoughts on why someone would pick Tyke over over something else? So firstly, thinking about something that probably doesn't actually matter is the implementation details, which I feel like developers do focus on a bit too much. So Kong is built on top of Nginx and has a very much lower based open source code base, whereas Tyke is all Golang and is a newer code base because it's just because it's a newer project. And to be honest, those are implementation details and really it doesn't matter. It comes down to the functionality and the performance. But I feel like there is some small use case where you might want to edit the code or make some changes to Tyke. And because it's Golang, which is a language built around APIs and, and web technology, that might make it a little easier to contribute to or make changes to. Do you think that's a compelling argument? So here's where I'm not sure, because my experience is that Adoption of API gateways often happens top down because it seems hard to mix your API gateways. So someone at the top has to decide, all right, we're all going in on this gateway. And so to me, that feels less of an, you know, bottom up open source. The developers are contributing all to the open source project kind of thing. But I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. That's a really interesting point because Tight includes a management UI as standard. It's just part of the product, whereas Kong, you only get that if you're paying for their enterprise version and you have to configure everything through their API or their CLI. And whilst that might not make a difference to developers, so then maybe being a bit easier, it may make a big difference to management if they're making the decision based on being able to click buttons and tick boxes in the settings control panel, do you think? Right. Yeah, I think the big the big question with these API gateways moving forward is that it's clear they're useful. Is the barrier to adoption that you have to get someone in, in charge to agree to it and unify the adoption across the company? Because a lot of what we're seeing with Akita, we're doing, you know, some of the functionality that API gateways do without a lot of the friction is people say we have a gateway for our external APIs, but for our internal APIs, that would be just way too hard. And so 
I think there's an open question of what is the role of gateways? Is it something people really are going to have to change a lot? Because if it's just for external APIs, they don't change very much. It goes through a lot of layers of review and people saying, yes, this is allowed. And so, yeah, I think I think part of the question of what kind of thing you want with your API gateway has to do with what the future holds for them in general. And it seemed incredibly complicated, like just all the components that you have to get set up to get all the different features for Tyke. And not just Tyke, Kong itself, there's so many different extras that you can add on and just scaling that and deploying. If you're only adding a few things like API versioning or being able to handle authentication in a better way, then it seems like it's a pretty heavy thing to add into your tech stack. Absolutely. So yeah, again, it doesn't feel like something developers sort of just pick up one at a time. And so I'm not sure what the benefit of the open source is, but I'd love to hear from our listeners because people probably have way more diversity of experience than the two of us have. Yeah, let us know. What do you think? Have you tried out Kong and how would you compare it to Tyke? The second tool we're talking about today is DeepSource. This is an automated code review tool that opens up pull requests and highlights problems by doing static analysis against your code. Now, they claim to be one of those enable and forget tools, which really just helps you with code quality. It can do automatic things like looking at coding style. It can highlight inconsistencies in how you're implementing things. It can even do performance warnings and and highlight common anti-patterns. And so it's interesting to think through how that's actually working behind the scenes, particularly if you could expose the rules engine so you could define your own. But static analysis you said, Gene, to me earlier that there's some potential limitations there. So what was your take? Yeah, I think that static analysis for linting is extremely useful because uh, essentially what static analysis does is it builds a model of your software and then it's able to analyze the software for all potential occurrences of certain behaviors, everything from type errors. So type checking is a very lightweight form of static analysis to does this data value potentially flow to this output channel or you know, to this function. But the limitation of static analysis is that it is necessarily conservative because most static analyses are aimed to find all possible occurrences of something without really having the ability to differentiate between how often does it occur. Because one thing about static analysis is it builds this model before the program runs based on a mathematical model of the program. And so you can't ask questions about hot paths or does this actually happen in practice because static analysis by definition doesn't see that kind of behavior. And so I am skeptical that this is a set it and forget it tool for a few reasons. One, because static analysis necessarily gives a lot of feedback, only some of which is useful. And so It depends on what you mean by set it and forget it, but I I do think there's a human past that needs to go 
over it afterward to understand the results of it. Something very interesting about the tool is that also it says that it automatically does fixes. If you are changing the semantics of your program in any way, if you're not just, you know, doing basic linting fixes, like I'm going to clean up the spaces, someone needs to be checking over that because even the fanciest static analysis can't do very much to your program without changing how it behaves and how that plays with other parts of the system that things depend on. Maybe what they're changing is very, very limited, but I have I have a really hard time thinking of too many examples where your program behavior doesn't change in a meaningful way if someone's changing your code. Right. And those kind of auto fix suggestions, you often see them come up in a CLI context. So like if you're running it on the code in your IDE before you've even committed it and you're part, still in the development flow. And sometimes that might come up as part of the compiler. So I know Rust is pretty good at making suggestions and often code just won't compile if it thinks it's wrong. Where do you think that should fit in the development flow? That's a great question. I think the IDE is a great place. Anywhere you need programmer oversight, the compiler is often too late if you're throwing a lot of warnings. So I'm what these static analyses tend to do is just throw throw a list of all of the warnings. And I've talked with a lot of security teams that use static analysis. And what they say is, look, we often just ignore all of the warnings because we are overwhelmed. It's, it's not that static analyses didn't warn us about, you know, list of major breaches. As a community, it's, it's not that I talked to the specific engineers who were involved in each of the breaches, but, you know, they said as a community, we were warned about all these breaches by our static analysis tools. They just happened to warn us about, you know, a million other things. So what are we supposed to do with that? It, it's sort of like that parent or that friend that tells you everything that can go wrong every time. You just kind of tune them out a lot of the time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Where would you say metrics come in then? So if it's always surfacing lots of problems, how can you prioritize those? So we, we talked about Sneak a couple of episodes ago where it has an understanding of the prioritization of issues, which was useful for those, those top critical security issues. But when you've got such a long list, it can be really difficult to triage those. I would not call the prioritization of static analysis issues metrics for the following reason. Because I think that the most useful prioritization comes from either the tool itself, where they impose their opinion, where they say, look, we think this kind of input validation issue is more important than a container issue is more important than this kind of issue. So someone has to go through and do a ranking, either the tool or the user. And I think the user probably is not going to do that. And so... Any kind of other metrics, I feel like, are much more useful in a dynamic context. So how often did this occur? What's the probability that this occurs based on how many times you saw it occur in practice? I would call those metrics, and I I would say, well, (laughs) static analysis can't do any of them. So I'm super curious to hear from our listeners which metrics are useful for analysis and which ones can we get from static analysis? Because I'm, I'm really skeptical. The deep sources seem to be starting to surface a few things there. And in particular, they're showing test coverage, which was the one thing that I thought was potentially useful in terms of metrics. But then the question is, well, are you trying to get to 100% test coverage? That That's what it would seem to be. But sometimes that might not be appropriate for the code, right? Theoretically, I think that's useful. But here's the thing. A static analysis will tell you anything can happen. 
And often tests are some percentage of the things that can actually happen. So my guess is that most people don't have 100% test coverage, but I, I could be very wrong. But my bias is that most people don't have 100% test coverage and they don't want it. And that a static analysis can't actually do a great job of determining the percentage you want. So what a dynamic analysis can tell you is, look, you know, in practice, about 70% of your code branches actually get exercised. These are the branches you really want to go for for coverage. And so, sure, if you are building a spacecraft or you are building a plane, you probably want to cover all of the cases because there are these infamous stories of planes crashing or spacecraft having issues because, you know, one bug. But if you're building the DoorDash app, I mean, come on, half the time I try to order food from DoorDash, it doesn't work. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure for most of these apps, coverage does not matter that much. Where do you think something like DeepSource fits into the tool chain? Because we've got things that are all the way in the ID that are showing up as developers are coding. And then you've got the complete other side where you're detecting things in production. And DeepSource, I suppose, is sitting towards the developer, but not, not, so not quite in the middle, but towards the developer and trying to surface things, I suppose, before they get merged into production. Where do you think the right position is? Right now... I think DeepSource is sitting further right than it needs to be because right now it's billing itself as the last gate before production. We give you a list of issues and, you know, set us and forget us and we'll automatically change stuff before you deploy. But I actually think that these kinds of techniques are better in the IDE, in the development cycle itself, because if you have a million potential issues and you're servicing them as a dump right before someone is trying to get their code merged, like the experience of that is not nearly as helpful as in the IDE where, you know, if someone tells you something that could happen, it's a little annoying, but, you know, people, you know, people get warned all the time as, as they go and they, they can actually process that in the moment. Because one other thing is you get taken out of the context of your development process by the time you've checked in your code and you're trying to merge it. But if you're in the IDE, I think you can handle a lot of these reports and a lot of these automatic changes a lot better. So I I, I would say I would like to see something like DeepSource get pushed further left. And this comes back to your general thesis around how important the IDE is for developers in general. And we kind of talked about this when we discussed Copilot. And then last episode with Sourcegraph about it taking you a little bit out of your flow into the browser and how that may need to move into the IDE. Yeah, so I'll admit I'm a, I'm a Vim kind of person. I don't use IDEs, but I think hypothetically, if you want the juice of all this stuff, you you got to put it in the IDE. I think developers love IDEs now. I, I am not that profile, but this is what I hear. And I think that for a lot of these fancy programmer helper kind of things, you, you want it there. All right, that's it for this week. Please let us know where you think the IDE fits into the future of development and what you're seeing with the kind of tools that you're putting into your developer flow. Yeah, every week we're talking about a lot of really interesting questions about the future of programming, the future of API management, and we'd love to hear from you. So tweet at us at console.dev. I'm at Jinkasaur. My company is at Akita Software and David is at David Mitten all on Twitter. We're there all the time. Thanks. See you next week.